Amen. And what a glorious time of worship. He's the King of Kings. And he is coming back. Amen to that. Pastor Mitchell is doing well. I know sometimes if I get up in the pulpit, everybody's like, oh, what happened? <laughs> uh, we had agreed some time ago that I would be preaching this weekend, and I'm grateful for the honor. And in fact, he was worried about me all week. Uh, thank you for praying as I have been recovering from some eye difficulties. The King of Kings is returning. It is a glorious truth that defines how we live. I remember, and this dates me a little bit, in college, 1988, about 15 years ago, <laughs> reading the book. Some of you might remember it. 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming in 1988. Somebody had figured out the times and dates that the Father had set by his own authority and proceeded to let the rest of us know about it. And in response to that, some folks went crazy, sold everything they owned, moved up to a mountain, waiting for Jesus to come. Well, he was wrong. He actually published a book the next year, 89 Reasons, because he had calculated wrong and wanted to correct that error, and it still didn't happen. But we are given to that kind of apocalyptic thinking. It wasn't a few years later that the book came out, The Coming Economic Earthquake, uh, warning believers about the collapse that was approaching within the next few years, which didn't happen, but then Y2K. Remember that one? When the two precedes all the numbers, all the computers in the world are gonna go crazy and we won't have electricity and we won't have water and the transportation system's gonna collapse and total chaos and people actually in response to that potential computer glitch sold everything, moved into the mountains, built a fortress, stored up the food, the whole thing. We are given to that kind of apocalyptic thinking and for some reason I still get on my Facebook feed advertisements about buying a year's worth of food and burying it in the mountains. It's probably because of other interests that I have, but that is not one of them. Now, the people who are thinking in those ways are right about something. They're right about a sense of urgency. They're right that the end is coming and about wanting to be prepared for that. But they're wrong as well. Yes, they're wrong about the timing. We've seen that over and over again. And actually, that has taken place in just about every generation since Jesus Christ ascended into glory. People wrong about the timing. But that's not the fatal error. What they're really in error about is the response. How do we respond to the truth that Jesus Christ is coming, and that the end is in fact near. And the Apostle Peter helps us with that response. He was writing to a people who were waiting for Jesus to return because they were living in a very difficult age. It was a difficult time to be a believer. It was a difficult time for the church. And so Peter writes to believers who are waiting for the end, and he writes to them about apocalyptic priorities. He says, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things 
is near. He lays out a life-changing fact. The soon return of Jesus Christ. Now we have to understand that, that Peter is not necessarily talking about chronological time. He doesn't mean that it's 1159 and the clock is ticking towards midnight. He means that in God's order of events, the very next thing is the end. Looking back on the history of salvation, God created this beautiful creation in which there was harmony and peace and love. And then the fall, where we fell into sin, and along with us, corruption came into that beautifully created world. But then God setting aside a people for himself through whom he would work redemption and through whom he would bring the Redeemer. And then the birth of Jesus Christ, God made flesh, who walked among us. And then he went to the cross for our sake. He died for our sins. He purchased redemption and now he has begun to restore all things because he rose from the dead and he ascended on high in glory and there's nothing else that has to happen yet for the end time to come. All the events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ can begin at any moment. Now, Peter says that might be a day, that might be a thousand years. But that's next. That's what's around the corner. Everything else has happened. The inevitable conclusion of all things is coming soon, at which there will be judgment, and in which some will go to eternal salvation and ever-increasing joy at the right hand of, Father, of the Father, and in which others will be given over to eternal judgment and condemnation. And the understanding that that is the thing that is next, that's the thing that is right around the corner, transforms how we relate to the events in the world, to the people around us, and how we relate as a church family. Now, Peter actually lays out four apocalyptic priorities. He lays out four end time uh, attitudes that we are supposed to have. It would be lovely to have a four-part series on this, maybe someday, not today. We're going to touch on the first three simply as an example of how end-time thinking turns our natural responses on their heads. And then we'll go into the fourth one, which is, which is what we want to emphasize today. So first of all, he says that end-time thinking changes how we think and therefore how we pray. Peter continues in verse seven, therefore, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Our natural response when there's something uh, cataclysmic around the corner is either to deny or to get caught up in the craziness of it all. And there are some people who 
just want to pretend that that end is actually never really going to take place. In fact, Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, people are going to be going about everyday life, sowing and reaping, marrying and giving in marriage, and are going to be caught by surprise. I wasn't ready because I wasn't thinking about that because I was caught up in the everyday affairs of the world. Peter says, be alert because the end of all things is at hand. And he says, be sober-minded. Oh, how we are given, if it's not to laziness and denial, oh, how we are given to addictive thinking, to writing books like 88 Reasons, to getting caught up in a variety of conspiracy theories, wars and rumors of wars to dig ourselves so deeply into the events that are at hand that we forget about setting our minds on things above and on the truth. And I know it in my own life, if only I would give at least as much time to the truth of God's word as sometimes I give to the news of the day, my thinking would be so much more sound. And as Peter says here, I would be better prepared to pray, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. End-time thinking or end-time perspective changes how we think and then enables us to come before the Father with the mess and all of the vileness of our current reality and all of the fear and, and the division that surrounds us to, to bring that to him and to receive from him guidance, wisdom, truth, and power to live in the way he calls us to live. So that's just a preview of someday talking about that one more deeply. The second one that he talks about, end time priorities or end time perspective changes how we relate to each other. The end of all things is near, therefore love. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Our natural way of living and thinking is to hear the things that maybe are a little bit offensive to us and, and become more deeply offended, to, to question the motives of others around us, uh, to dig into the ways that somebody has sinned against us. But end time thinking makes us say, you know what, that doesn't matter. Have you ever been in that kind of situation, deeply embroiled in conflict, and then something awful happens? And suddenly that conflict doesn't mean a thing because I realize there are more important things in life than how I have been offended. I love my brother or sister. I desire their very best because of the kingdom of God, and I'm not worried about that offense, small or sometimes even major, because it just doesn't matter when Jesus Christ is returning. Love covers over a multitude of sins, particularly when we're thinking in light of eternity. And of course, we can't skip over the reference here 
to the love of Jesus Christ, covering over the immeasurable multitude of our sin against him. And so in forgiving others, we are merely following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. End time thinking also changes how we relate to our resources. Peter goes on to talk about hospitality. The end of all things is near, therefore offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Now, the examples that I gave previously about apocalyptic thinking talk about hoarding, about gathering my resources to myself, about going somewhere else on my own in isolation so that I can be protected against these things outside of me that I fear. And Peter says, no, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, your priority is giving. Your priority is opening yourself up to others who are need and practicing hospitality without regard to your own resources. So those are three examples. They could be three sermons. How end time, how end time perspective changes our priorities. The thing that we're really gonna dig into this morning is the next one. The end of all things is near, therefore serve one another. Reading in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, use your spiritual gift. Now that kind of sounds a little bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? Because basically he's saying the end of all things is at hand, therefore, do what you ought to be doing every day anyway. Serving one another in the particular way that God has enabled us. I hope by the way that you see the parallels and actually how very closely this is tied in with the sermon series on the Upper Room Discourse that Pastor Mitchell has begun. He has emphasized that Jesus' hour had come. Again, that event-oriented thinking that says that the day that Jesus has been waiting for, the day that previously had not yet come, was at hand. The Upper Room Discourse is the penultimate moment in Jesus' life before he is to go to the cross. And so he communicates to his disciples the, the most important things that he can tell them about in order to prepare them for what is coming. He talks with them about service. He talks with them about loving one another. Peter, who was there, Peter, who listened to those words, Peter, who had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his beauty and in his glory and in his majesty, Peter, who had fled at the crucifixion but been restored after the resurrection, Peter says the hour is at hand for all of us 
glorious Jesus Christ is coming and will be visible to everyone and will establish his eternal kingdom. Therefore, serve and love each other. He talks about serving each other specifically in the context of spiritual gifts. This is another thing that we could talk about for a long time. There's a lot of teaching in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. There's a lot of teaching in the church about spiritual gifts. But his emphasis here is not so much that we learn about this, but rather that we recognize and use the ways that God has prepared us for ministry in his grace, the way that he has gifted us to serve. In fact, it's important to understand that the root of this word gift doesn't have to do with a transaction, giving and receiving, but rather has to do with God's grace. It's important for us to recognize that. When Paul actually talks about money, when he talks about financial gifts, he uses totally different terminology. Here we are not in the realm of transaction. Here we are in the realm of grace. When the Apostle Paul and here when Peter talks about this kind of gifting, he is talking about another manifestation of God's grace in our lives in which he pours out his undeserved favor upon us. And one way that he manifests his grace is giving each one of us a particular ability to serve others for the building up of the body of Christ. Please recognize that that's what the gift, whatever it might be that Peter says we have, that's what a spiritual gift is about building up others within the body of Christ, increasing the body of Christ by serving and telling others about Jesus. It's not something that we conjure up, by the way. He says, each one of us should use whatever gift we have received. The teaching of the New Testament is very clear that it is the Holy Spirit who determines how each one of us is supposed to serve. It is the Holy Spirit who distributes these gifts according to his wisdom because he knows best how the body of Christ functions together. He knows best who we are as individuals and the best way that we can serve. So Peter says, you've received this manifestation of God's grace enabling you to build up the body of Christ by speaking or by serving. So use that gift. Every one of you. He puts an emphasis here on the fact that each one has a gift. And isn't that beautiful? Because I know so often we think, I don't have anything to do. I'm not needed. I can't sing like Danny. I can't preach like Pastor Mitchell. I'm not bold like that evangelist. I don't have a place. How could God use me? Each one has been gifted in order to serve. And the fact is that if we do not all serve in the way that God has enabled us, then the whole body misses out. Paul is very clear on this teaching. No part of the body 
can say to another part, I don't need you. Every part is necessary. Every part is important. If you don't serve in the way that God has gifted you to serve in our church family and in the world, then other people miss out. And on the converse, if you do, then everyone else benefits. Please hear that church family. The Holy Spirit has enabled you to serve in a particular way that is unique to you for the benefit of the whole body. And that is part of the beauty of the church, part of the beauty of the body of Christ. And so Peter says, the end of all things is near, therefore let each one serve according to the various gifts that they have received and do so faithfully, to do so as a faithful steward. This word for stewardship is just so rich. The basic idea of a steward is a servant, one who is under authority, but who has been given a responsibility that they can carry out. A great example would be Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, both in the house of Potiphar, as well as the second in command under Pharaoh. Joseph was a slave. He had been sold into slavery. He had been purchased by Potiphar. He had absolutely no position in life. But God, by his grace, enabled Joseph to be able to serve wisely, such that Potiphar recognized that and elevated him to the position of a steward under whom everything else in the household took place. Nobody will do anything in my household, and then later on Pharaoh said the same thing, nobody will do anything in the kingdom of Egypt unless you say so. Joseph. But that didn't mean that he was no longer a slave. Like that, he could be removed from his position because he belonged to Potiphar and he served under the Pharaoh. A steward coming to our day is someone who deserves nothing but by God's grace has received a responsibility and therefore carries out that responsibility faithfully. We are called to, to be in that relationship, one of humility, one of service, but one of faithfully carrying out the task that God has entrusted to us. And then as Peter describes how it is that we faithfully carry out this task, he divides our ways of serving into two different categories. Each one of us should serve faithfully as a steward. And so if you are speaking, then do it in this particular way. If you are serving, then do it in this particular way. I actually love the idea that he doesn't list out a whole gamut of spiritual gifts at this point. We want those lists, don't we? And you can go into the New Testament and you can find the three or four different places that the spiritual gifts are listed and you can make the list, but that list is not going to be exhaustive. 
None of those lists actually completely correspond to the other. Each one adds something else. And then in a couple places, Paul says, oh, there's this gift and oh, there's that gift. It doesn't matter to Peter what the particulars are of the gift that we have at this point. He is calling all of us to recognize that we can speak for the glory of God and we can serve for the glory of God. And one of the things that I love is he doesn't even have any particular hierarchy of gift at this particular point. He doesn't say, well, if you can't manage to speak, well, then at least you can serve. He simply says, there is speaking and there is serving. We see this lived out in the life of the early church in Acts chapter 6. The total structure of leadership in the church in Acts chapter 6 is 12 apostles. That's it. And these apostles have the ministry of prayer and of the word of God. But there were widows in the group that were being served on a daily basis, the church doing what the church ought to do, providing for those who were in need. And a conflict was coming up about how this should best and most equitably be done. And the apostles realized, wait a minute, this is getting bigger than us. We can't do everything. Let's choose church. Let's choose seven men who will carry on this particular ministry. And what I love is they lay out the qualifications for these seven men who are going to make sure that food is distributed equitably. He says, choose from among you men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Wait a minute, you're talking about waiting on tables. What does Holy Spirit and wisdom have to do with that? Because it's the church. Because every ministry is a spiritual ministry. Whether it's changing the light bulbs or fixing the toilets or taking a meal to somebody who's hungry or teaching in a Sunday school class or serving on one of the leadership committees or all of the myriad of things that take place, it is people who are full of the Holy Spirit who are carrying out these ministries because each one of those ministries work together so that the body of Christ can function for the building up of the saints in maturity and the image of Jesus Christ and for the spread of the gospel around the world. And so you have these two areas of ministry of equal significance within the body of Christ, speaking and serving. But whichever one it is, it needs to be done faithfully. If it's speaking, it needs to be done in the recognition that these are the words of God that we are sharing. And so Paul gives a solemn charge to Timothy to prepare well, to be found as a workman who is approved in carrying out that ministry of speaking. Whether God has gifted you to speak a word of encouragement into someone's life or to pray for them or to teach them in Sunday school or to share the gospel in your neighborhood, whatever that ministry of speaking is, make sure that it's the word of God because that's the infallible and powerful truth. Not what we can conjure up. If you're speaking, do so faithfully 
speaking the very words of God. And if you are serving, do so faithfully, living in the power of God. He talks here about the energy that is required for service. It reminds me of Paul talking about how he serves faithfully and tirelessly with the energy of Christ at work in him. It reminds me again of how Jesus is going to talk to the disciples in the upper room in which he talks about the necessity of the life of Christ flowing through us because it is only in him and in his life that we can see fruit as a result of our ministry. So if we are speaking, we speak the very words of God. If we are serving, we are living out the very life of Jesus Christ in us. And then the purpose, doing so for God's glory. This is incredible. The sovereign Lord of all the universe wants to get glory for himself. So he gave you a gift to serve faithfully so that in these very desperate times, he can get the glory. Do you see how all of this is just the very opposite of our tendencies? When we consider that the end of all times is at hand, we want to think about ourselves instead of thinking about others and thinking about how to best glorify God. We want to hoard our resources to ourselves instead of being generous with them. We want to protect instead of reaching out. We want to look out for number one instead of looking out for number one because recognizing actually that we aren't, and he is, and our neighbor is, we want to wait instead of going with the message of Jesus Christ. But when the end of all things are at hand, what Jesus is calling us to do is to love and to glorify him by serving others. And in some ways, it really is. The end of all things is at hand. So do what you ought to do every day. When the Son of Man comes, will we be found faithful? This morning, right before Sunday school, a lady was coming in a little bit late. I opened the door. She said, wait a minute. I just saw that so-and-so's coming. She's got a bundle of kids. I'm gonna go off and help her. If Jesus had come at that moment, she would have been found faithful. Yesterday, we had a newcomers class that's gonna continue. Don't forget newcomers, room 115 after the service. We came in here to have our class and there was a man who was cleaning off the sprinkler heads because we had had our inspection last week and the fire inspector said, your sprinkler heads are dirty. If Jesus had come at that moment, he would have been found doing exactly what God had gifted him to do, serving. There are so many things 
that we can be doing. So many ways that we can speak and we can serve as the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do. Holding babies in the nursery, making coffee, serving up in the sound booth, teaching a Sunday school class, showing kids the way to Jesus, serving a widow in our neighborhood, building up her steps, showing her the love of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ for those around us. And the list goes on and on. I know that there are two people in here who are hoping that I will mention, in particular, children's ministries. There are so many of you who can think back to a Sunday school teacher who invested themselves lovingly in you. And you are where you are today in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit worked through them in your life. And we have the opportunity over and over again. When the end of all things is at hand, what do we want to do? Well, one thing we want to do is look out for our kids, right? The end of all things is at hand. Serve in children's ministries. And by the way, we have a lot of needs in the technical aspect of how Sunday morning goes about. Right now, just going to say it, right now we have two men who serve on the soundboard every single week because there's only two of them and we have to have somebody who does the house sound and we have to have somebody who does the live stream sound. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to have perfect pitch, Danny, <laughs> in order to do the soundboard. You have to have a good ear and be able to handle some technology. The end of all things is at hand. Help in the worship service by serving on that team. But I'm not saying that to everybody. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift. Serve like somebody's life depends on it. Because in fact, Jesus Christ is coming back. And we must be found faithful at his return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how amazing it is even to consider that we can serve you. You are holy, holy, holy. And all that we really deserve is eternal separation because of our sin. But you have poured out your grace. You've poured out your grace in Jesus Christ, offering us the way back to you through his sacrificial death, his wrath-bearing death the condemnation that he took in our place, and then the life that he, the resurrected king, offers us who believe. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of justification being made right with you. The gift of redemption being purchased back from sin and death. And thank you for the gift of being able to serve 
There's nothing we can be proud of. There's no possible way that we could imagine getting glory for ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to increase your power or your glory. And yet you have gifted us. You've made us your servants. And even more than that, you've made us your friends. And you enable us to be a part of your amazing work in people's lives. You could accomplish the transformation on your own and yet you choose to work through us. And so all we can say is thank you and all we can ask is that you would enable us to be faithful servants. Lord, there is so much that distracts us in this world. There's so many things that I want to do today that I've got to get done today. They press in. Turn our eyes to you. Lift us up to think about heavenly things and not earthly things. Open our eyes to see the needs around us and the particular way that you have so very graciously enabled us to serve in the power of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do it for your glory and for the joy of your people and for the joy of those who surround us in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.